All right, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse number 17. Hey, last week, if you were here, we, we saw the triumphal entry of Jesus. So, so Matthew 21 begins the last seven days of Jesus's life. 28 chapters in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, and these last chapters all detail seven days of Jesus' life. So he devotes um, eight chapters to seven days, and what's eight minus, 20 chapters to, I'm just kidding, 20 chapters to 33 years of living, and then so this last week of Jesus is crunch time. It's so crucial, crucial in John's gospel. He actually devotes more time to this last week and actually the last two or three days of Jesus's life. So that's where we are. He'll be, he's in Jerusalem for the last time. And triumphal entry was um, the, the Sunday before Jesus raised, raised from the dead, which is um, coming up in the gospel. And so last week we had the triumphal entry. And what did Jesus do? Do you remember after he rode in triumphantly on a donkey, they laid palm branches down, they begin to praise him and worship him, Hosanna in the highest, glory to God on earth. And the kids began to worship him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees shouted and said, you know, only God can receive, can receive worship. This is blasphemy. Jesus, tell your disciples to stop worshiping you. And Jesus said, if they stop worshiping me, the very rocks will cry out. And, and, and so there was a question. Didn't I ask you guys a question? I forgot it now. What happened Where? What happened after that? That was the question. What after the, thank you, someone's paying attention, uh, not me, but after the, after the triumphal entry, he gets off the donkey, where did he go and what did he do? Do you guys remember? He cleansed the temple. He went into the temple and, and they were stealing from the people that were traveling all over. In the law of Moses, it was commanded that God's people would, would, would aliyah. They would make trek to Jerusalem once a year if they were able, if they were physically able around Passover. And Jerusalem, a town of a couple hundred thousand, would swell to millions around Passover every year. And so the people would come from afar off to make sacrifices in Solomon's temple. And when they got there, the priest had set up an elaborate deal. And they say in today's day, the priest would make about $3 million ripping the people off in, in this season of Passover when people would travel all over. Because the, the lamb that had to be sacrificed, the turtle doves, the offering that they would make to God in the temple had to be perfect. Because God wouldn't allow us to bring second best. God wouldn't allow us to bring a blemished lamb or turtle dove. And so the priests would inspect it to make sure it was acceptable before they sacrificed it. And they began ripping the people off and saying, no, this one's not acceptable. But you can buy this one. It's pre-approved. It's just 20 times what a lamb should cost. And the people were paying, and then Jesus came in, and he overturned the tables, and he said, you've made my house a den of thieves, when it should be called, my house should be called a house of prayer. prayer. And so that's where we left off. And then in the next verse, in verse 17, it says, then he left them, those were the people in the temple where he turned the tables over, and he went out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. And now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Did you guys know Jesus got hungry? Did you guys know he had to use a bathroom? <laughs> you know all something about Jesus? He probably laughed. He cried. The Bible tells us twice he cried. He cried once because his friend Lazarus died and it brought him to tears. He cried another time because he could see in the future and he saw the plight of Jerusalem, the holy city, and, and it broke his heart that the, that the Jews didn't receive him as their Messiah. And he wept over what was going to happen and what was coming. Jesus got hungry. He got tired. He slept. He, he, he joked. You know, he hung out with 
12 guys every day for three years. What do you think 12 guys did hanging out for three years every day? You don't think they told jokes and laughed and teased one another? And matter of fact, the Bible says that, that James and John, two of the disciples, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. He said that in jest. It was a joke. He was teasing his buddies. And he's like, because why did he call them sons of thunder? Because they went to a city and Jesus preached and nobody received the gospel. And when they left early in the early days of Jesus's ministry, James and John said, Jesus, those people didn't receive the gospel. Why don't you call down fire from heaven and kill them all? And Jesus said, calm down, sons of thunder. We ain't calling fire down from heaven and killing nobody. And you know, what's crazy about John who wanted to call fire down from heaven in the beginning of walking with Jesus, three years later, after living and learning and, and, and growing and his heart changing, John becomes, to this day, we know John as the disciple of love. He went from wanting to kill people to being known as the one who had just the most amazing love of God and of people. And in his, in his epistles, later in his life, when John was an old man, he wrote, he wrote epistles, letters we have in the Bible. And, and in those, he said, over and over and over and over again, love one another in First, Second John, love one another, love one another. And you're, you're reading First John and you're reading John and you're thinking, am I like reading the same sentence over and over again? Can I not keep moving? But no, you keep moving. You just, he just keeps saying the same thing. Love one another, love one another, love one another. It was told of the Apostle John that late in his life, and as you know the Apostle John, what happened was every one of Jesus' disciples was murdered or martyred for their faith, except for John, the son of thunder. He died of old age. He was the only one. But history tells us, whether it's true or not, I don't know how to prove it or unprove it, but that they also tried to kill him, and they dipped him in a vat of boiling oil. And he came out, and the same, God did the same miracle that he did in the book of Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace, and they came out, and their clothes did not smell like smoke. That, 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 so then what they did was they exiled John to the island of Patmos. And what happened when he was on the island of Patmos? He wrote the book of Revelation. God showed up and he wrote the book of Revelation. And history says that late, late in John's life, in his dying years, that he got off the island of Patmos and he would visit all the churches that Paul was starting. And, and he would be the, the big crescendo key speaker, like the man walked with Jesus. He's in his 90s. He's been on Patmos. He's seen revelations from God. And, and, and he was going to get to speak to the church. And when the worship was over, he would come up and he would get on the stage and, and, and everybody was preparing this great sermon that John was going to preach. And John would say, love one another. And then he'd go sit down. And that was his message. Now, that's history, so I can't say that's not Bible. It could be true. It sounds true to me. What do you guys think? <laughs> so Jesus, that was all, that, that was all out of the, the verse that says that Jesus was hungry. So you're like, we're going to be here a while. All right. And then it says he was hungry, and in verse 19, and seeing the fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit go, grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. One of the um, biblical idioms of a fig tree, it's a symbol of the nation of Israel. In the, in the uh, minor prophets, we have Joel and Hosea, and, and both in Joel and Hosea, they use the term fig tree to describe the nation of Israel and the call of Israel and God's plan for Israel. And as you know, um, God had to choose a people. You know, why did he choose the Jews? Oftentimes, if you ask a Jew, why did God choose you? And, or if you tell a Jew, you're God's chosen people, they'll say, well, we don't want to be God's chosen people. What's it done for us? Why don't you be God's chosen people? But God chose a people and 
and, and he sent his son, and his son had a nationality. He was Jewish. One time I was at a conference, and the pastor was, was preaching about the love of God and the love of Jesus, and Jesus loves all people. And he said, Jesus is not black, and Jesus is not Mexican, and Jesus is not white, and Jesus is not Chinese. And I wanted to say so bad, I know, he's Jewish. <laughs> and, and like it or leave it, it's just the reality. Jesus was Jewish. He had a Jewish mom and a Holy Spirit for a father, and... Um, and was born in Israel. He's coming back to Israel. And, um, and God chose a people and he raised them up. And his design in his heart for the nation of Israel was that they would be a light to the world. He was going to entrust them with something that was the most valuable commodity on all of planet earth for all of human history. And that was the word of God, the written word of God. And he was going to give it to the Jew and the Jew was to give it to the world. And it was supposed to be the, the, the light of the world. And, and what happened was when Jesus came and he wept because the Jew did not receive Jesus as their Messiah. And he said, this day, if you would have known your peace and, your, and the call of God that, that God had on your life, but you missed it. And, and now he's coming to another. And, and, and shortly after that, the gospel for the first time, the early church was all Jewish. All 12 disciples were Jewish, every one of them. All the writers of the New Testament are Jewish. And, and, and in the book of Acts, shortly after that season, the gospel comes to the Gentiles. And for the last 2,000 years, God has chosen and used the Gentile as that light that he intended for the Jew to be. Does it mean that God is upset and, and replaced the Jew? Absolutely not. That's what we call replacement theology. It's demonic. It's evil. It's not true. God still has, uh, is still coming to Jerusalem, and when the tribulation happens and the rapture happens, God is going to again, not that he's not now taking care of Israel. You know, you know Israel has had 40 ancient enemies, nations, and countries from the Canaanites to the Egyptians to the Babylonians to the Assyrians to the Philistines to the Palestinians to the Irani Ir Iranians and Egyptians, and Israel is still a nation. And many of those places are not a nation anymore. And God has a call upon them in the future and is going to restore them. But in the season that we're in, this dispensation, God is using you and I, the Gentile bride of Christ, as, as the light of the world to, to bring the gospel to the world. Well, the fig tree was that nation. And here in this season, um, it, it's kind of the, the point where Jesus is making the point that Israel um, missed the call of God that he had on them. And the Jew missed the call. And here he... he, he, he kind of in essence that he, he required fruit and they didn't give it. And so he withers this fruit tree, which is a symbol many times in the Bible of the nation of Israel. And in verse 20, it says, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither so away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So we get these amazing promises of prayer in the Bible. Sometimes it's like almost too good to be true. Like, can this really be? And Jesus said, whatever you ask, believing, you will receive. And he said, if you say to this mountain, be removed, it'll be removed. And, and you know, but this is really not a command for you and I to be able to wither fig trees and to command mountains to move because if that's the case, there's no faith in the church because last time I checked, nobody's ever said to this mountain, be removed, and it left. Has anyone ever commanded the, the island of Stansbury Island to be removed and it slid over or anywhere else in the world? It's not, it's not the point. It's big faith, and it, is, it does take faith, but Jesus is not literally saying, you know, I've tried it. Has anybody else tried it because of this verse? 
Have you ever looked at a mountain and said, hey, be ye removed? It's still there. But he's talking about the faith that, that the nation of Israel and that, that they missed it, but that for those that, that have faith in Jesus and for those that believe, it's, it's receiving. In another place, Jesus said, you, you, you receive what you ask for in prayer when you ask according to my will. And anything you ask according to the will of God, and he says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask amiss because you ask for your own selfish desires. So the promise in prayer that you'll receive absolutely everything that you ask for is when you pray according to God's will. And so anything according to God's will, you know what I like about that promise? Is the Bible says it's the will of God that all men should be saved. So when you pray for somebody to be saved and you pray for God to work in somebody's life, that's according to the will of God. You know that prayer is being answered because it says right in there, if you pray according to the will of God, it'll be answered. But if you pray that God would give you a new Cadillac, maybe that's not in the will of God. Maybe what God wants to give you instead is a broken big toe. And that's what you'll receive. And so you pray according to the will of God. You know, Jesus set the greatest example in prayer, right? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was asking God if there's any other way that men can be saved. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so we pray according to the will of God, and God does it. He wants us to pray believing. And then he says, In verse 23, and now when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. So now we have the big um, showdown in the temple. So now he's back in the temple and the, the, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Israel, in Jesus' day, the political um, governors and leaders and all those and the religious groups were not separated. They were all one entity. The religious folks and the government folks was called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70 ruling members made up of different groups of Republicans and Democrats, basically Sadducees and Pharisees and different types of groups. They were very um, haughty. They were very outwardly religious. They, <coughs> they, um, they had this outward form of, of godliness without the power thereof. And they dressed in these fancy robes and, and you know, what you could imagine where, how the Pope would look when the Pope's got all his stuff on that kind of deal where, you know, and so they would have showed up and this big group would have been approaching Jesus in the temple. And there would have been this amazing showdown that was about to take place as they approached Jesus. Now, why were they approaching him and want to have this showdown? Because he just went in and he overturned their money tables and whipped people and kicked people out of the temple who were robbing the people who were coming to worship God. And so they're coming and their question, look at verse number 21. It says, so Jesus, I'm sorry, verse number 23 And it says, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Doing what things? Turning over the money tables and those things that he was doing in the temple. By what authority do you do these things? You know, it's funny because um, I've had somebody ask me a very similar question. I was doing a baptism here in Utah. And it was funny because the... We did church service, and then we had a little break, and then we did the baptismal service here, and um, and then after that took about an hour, and then after the baptismal service, people stood around and talked, and one woman who was kind of new, I didn't know her very well, and she came as a guest, and she stayed for all the services, all the break, all the baptism, all the break after that, because she wanted to talk to me, 
And she finally got an opportunity to talk to me after, after it was all done. Everybody had started to leave. There was just a few of us left. And, what, and this is what she wanted to, to know. And she said, by what authority do you baptize? She was upset. And she wanted to know by what authority I had to baptize. And so this is, you know, a common question. And I want to encourage you guys, because you may get that question. You may, you may hear that. Hey, turn with me, if you, re- if you will, really quick to 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you get to Hebrews, keep going. If you get to Revelation or 1 John, you went too far. 1 Peter chapter um, 2. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. I shared with her this verse that um, the authority that I, that I baptize with comes from Jesus. And guess who else has this authority? Every one of you. <laughs> if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a born-again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, then you've been given this authority. Look what the Bible says about you and I, the common believer, the average person. Do you know that um, before Jesus died on the cross, that only one high priest went into the Holy of Holies where the, where the presence of God resided, and only once a year? He went into the Holy of Holies and he offered sacrifices. And, and they would tie a rope around his ankle with bells on it in case he wasn't worthy and, and fell over dead in the temple and they pulled him out because so, they weren't going to go in after him lest they die. Do you know that when Moses received the law of God on Mount Sinai, how many people went up on the mountain to meet with God personally? Just one, Moses. It's called a Moses model. And, and that's the way the priesthood worked for thousands of years, and rightfully so, by the design of God. The word priest or, is basically somebody who, who God, God raised up, a Levitical tribe, that they would meet with God, and God would talk to the priest, and then the priest would come down and talk to the people about what God said. And then the people would talk to the priest, and then the priest would go and talk to God about what the people said. And there was a communication channel that God created called the Moses model, um, where, where we had priests. And for thousands of years, this is the way that it was. The Moses model is, is so, was so powerful and used for so many years that lots of churches never got rid of it when they should have. And to this day, we have places where you as a, as a regular believer, you as a regular follower, don't have the same access to God as the leadership in your church does. But that's just not true. That's not biblical. That's not what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, you know what's so cool about this? It says that when Jesus died on the cross, he breathed his last. The last words out of Jesus' mouth on the cross were, in English, it is finished. The words that he actually said were, te telestai. And the Bible says he breathed his last and died upon the cross. The very next word in the Bible is a super important, powerful, like hard to understand because it's so big-headed Bible word. You know what it is? Then. The next word in the Bible is then. Then the veil of the temple rent from top to bottom. You know what's so cool about the veil of the temple renting from top to bottom? It was like Jesus didn't even want to wait until he rose from the grave. You know, he didn't conquer sin and death until three days later when he rose from the, from the grave. That work wasn't done. But the work of, of renting the temple from top to bottom, he, he, he didn't even wait. And he, okay, God, do it, do it, do it, do it. Like, he was ready. It was, so, it was such an important thing. In it, but it changed everything. Because not only now, only the high priest once a year was allowed to go in. And this radical dichotomy shift in human history happens that we all miss that every one of you, every one of us has been invited now to come into the Holy of Holies. 
You know what else happened? In that same verse, Jesus died on the cross. You can look it up, Matthew uh, 27. Um, Jesus dies on the cross, 2751. Jesus dies on the cross. It says, then the veil of the temple rent, the earth quaked, the stones broke, the, 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 the graves were open, and dead people got out of the graves the, the moment Jesus died on the cross. You know, that's a detail that I've read a hundred times, and it never just like hit me until the other day I was reading it. I was with Dan, and I was like, hey, Dan, open your Bible. Do you read that? Am I crazy, or does that say dead people were walking around when Jesus died? He's like, yeah, no, that's what it says. I was like, yeah, that's the real walking dead. And, he's like, and, and what, was, what, what, what were they saying? Dead people walking around the city of Jerusalem that rose when Jesus died from the grave. And what was their message? It couldn't have been that Jesus defeated sin and death and rose from the grave because Jesus is currently still on the cross. He's dead, but he is on the cross. Dead people walking around. Veil of the temple rent in Jerusalem. Maybe they went to go see it for themselves. Maybe they went with the message to the people that you're all invited now to come into the presence of God. You all have the same access that for thousands of years only Moses and the priests had. You now can all come into the presence of God. And this is who you need between you and God now. Absolutely no one. And that that we're all invited into the very presence of God. And we all have the same access to God. It's, It's radical. It was radical what happened on the cross when Jesus died in the veil of the temple rent. Now, we don't understand the way the Jewish culture, the law, the temple, we've, we've never seen the temple and how it operated in its heyday and how God intended it. And so we miss some of that. But the veil of the temple rents and gives us access and we're all called. Now, now and all that was to preface what I'm going to read here. So, so look what Peter says in commentary on some of this. Look at verse number four, first uh, Peter chapter two, verse four. You guys are there with me? It says, coming to him as a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You know what Jesus says about you big tough men? Hey, Pat, the Lord thinks you're precious. Precious, you guys are precious. And then he says, not only are you precious, he said you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Is anybody there with me? Read the next word for me. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says that you are a holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices that are acceptable to God. So if we offer a baptism as a royal priesthood, it's acceptable to God because the veil of the temple rent and God has made in essence the bride of Christ, the church, all kingdom of priests. Every one of you has the same anointing and the same call of God that God has placed on you. That's radical. It's not radical to us because we live 2,000 years later. But the idea would have without a doubt been radical in Jesus' day and for those that were transitioning. And then look what it says. Follow, go down to verse number 9 in the same chapter, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Everybody say a royal priesthood. Did you guys know you were priests? <laughs> Here, I better, I better officially anoint you guys. I got to make the sign of the cross. Chuck, Chuck, Mendu, you are all priests. So as a priest, what can you do? You're not sure? Can you baptize people? Do you have that authority? So if somebody comes to you and says, by what authority do you baptize? You can take them to 1 Peter chapter 2, and you can show them that you're a royal priesthood, and by the authority of Jesus Christ vested in you, 
You, you have the ability and the humility to baptize in the name of Jesus as he commanded us to go into all nations, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Look what else he says, verse 9 again. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Not only are you precious, you're also special. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. I often quote that verse that Jesus called me out of the darkness and into the light. He delivered me out of hell and into heaven. And so by the grace of God, I, I, I don't have to go to hell anymore because he delivered me out of the darkness and into the light. One, who once were not a people but, now, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but have now attained mercy. The people who were not a people as you and I, the bride of Christ, the Gentile church that Jesus has chosen to pour his spirit out upon all flesh. And so they come to Jesus and they said, by what authority do you do these things? Let's check out Jesus' answer back in Matthew. In Matthew 24, Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I, I, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So I want to um, share with you guys maybe a little controversial subject and Others might think it's not so wise to make up, bring up controversial subjects on a Sunday morning, but I'm not as wise as other people. Um, so how many of you guys this week, um, or last week, in the last couple of weeks, have followed the whole Lauren Daigle kind of debate thing that's going on? Lauren Daigle, nobody? Just me? A few of you saw it? Anybody see it? So Lauren Daigle is a super, super famous, popular Christian recording artist, some of the biggest songs in Christian industry. She's... As far as accomplished in Christian music, there's nobody better. There's nobody bigger. Grammys, awards, albums. She was on the Ellen DeGeneres show. She's done, she's sang to hundreds of thousands, audience of hundreds of thousands of people and um, recorded. And she's an amazing young Christian recording artist. Some of her songs are, have ministered to me in such a way that is so powerful and so moving. And she was interviewed recently and the interviewer asked her, is homosexuality a sin? And she gave an answer that upset some Christians. And unfortunately, the Christian folks um, attacked her instead of her answer, or instead of in a loving way. And that's unfortunately what, what happens too often in the church, that, you know, that, that, that we attack each other. And, you know, definitely her answer was wrong, she, but, but at the same time, you know, I never wanted to attack her personally, and there's no reason. You know, here, just a little side note. This is what bothers me sometimes about this stuff. And again, side note, so bear with me if you're a guest here today. But, you know, the same Christians who spend all their time on Facebook and social media, and they're nasty when these things happen, and they're quick to point the finger. You know, I, I often wonder, or, or my question is always the same. The person who's pointing the finger and is so mad at Lauren Dangle is so self-righteous and telling her what, why she's wrong and all this stuff, I, I just want to ask them one question. What are you doing for Jesus? And if your answer is, what I do for Jesus is I tell everybody else why they're wrong, my answer for you is take a hike. You better go somewhere. Like, you're, you're, you're the one that gives Christianity a black, a black eye. You're the ones that the, 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 the world believes that we're judgmental and we're self-righteous. It's because of Christians like you that give, a, give God a bad name. Listen, if I want to be more focused personally. I want to be focused on what I'm doing for Jesus, not what you're doing for Jesus. I'm not going to judge you or what, you know, that's that, why. I, I got enough to do trying to serve Jesus on my own that I don't need to be worried about and bad-mouthing what somebody else is doing and how they're doing it wrong. I had a woman here show up one time, and she told me, well, my ministry is to go to all the churches and, and tell them why they're wrong. 
And I was like, well, my ministry is to show you where the door is. It's right over there. Don't let it. <laughs> when you leave. But, you know, I want to I tell you on this topic, it's, it's a loaded question just like these questions are loaded with Jesus. One of the things that, um, that, that frustrates me to no end is, you know, I take Lydia's dad, for example. Lydia's dad's been faithful in ministry for 45 years. He's led thousands and thousands of people to Jesus. I, I, I had breakfast on Friday with a guy who is a huge fan of Pastor Gerald, you know, and everybody has an opinion, and I bless them all. But this guy's opinion, and, his, and, and Cindy was going through cancer. Lydia's mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and she was very sick. And this guy in our church back home, he, his wife was, was in the hospital, and she had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And, and it all happened fast, and this guy was on his way to the hospital. And um, when he got to the hospital, Pastor Gerald was standing in the lobby, and he was there with him. And he walked through the whole process with him as Cindy was dying from cancer. And, and, and he, he just said, I don't care what anybody says, too. That's my guy. You know, he was there for me. And um, he started an orphanage in the Philippines, and we, um, we served there. And as a church, we spent lots of years there. We sent pastors there and missionaries and hundreds and hundreds and millions over the years of dollars to, to helping orphans in, in, in um, Malawi, Philippines. I'm not Malawi, Philippines. Dumaguete City in the Philippines. Later... Um, started a second orphanage in um, Malawi, Africa that we still are a part of today where hundreds of kids every day are being given the gospel and food and clothes and taken care of. Has done thousands of weddings and, and marriage counseling and have seen thousands of, of, of broken lives made well through being a part of their lives and counseling them through their marriage problems and seeing their marriage problems getting better and has given his life to serve people and to love and to and to start orphanages and traveled all over the world doing missions and trips and, you know, and, and, and nothing about this guy's life could, could you honestly say speaks hate. Not a thing. 45 years of dying to himself, of serving other people, and he gets interviewed by the news, by the news channel. And the news channel wants to know one thing. What do you think they want to know? Pastor Gerald, is homosexuality a sin? And guess what happens if he says yes? He's a hater. He's evil. He's a evil. Now, what about his life? Why don't you ask him about his orphanage in the, in, in the Philippines? Why don't you ask him about his other orphanage in Malawi, Africa? Why don't you ask him about the $10 million he's raised for the orphans around the world? Why don't you ask him about the thousands of people that he's led to Jesus and the thousands of marriages and the lives and the, that have been changed by his ministry? But that's what you want to know? And so it's a loaded question. When they asked Lauren Daigle the same question, it was a loaded question. And she couldn't win. And Jesus here gives us some wisdom. And if somebody asks you this question, this is, and I've been praying about, you know, for myself, because I had it too. I had it recently. I had a phone call recently, and the lady said, hey, I'm local, and we've been traveling to Salt Lake, and we're looking for a church. But we just got one question before we come to your church. Is homosexuality a sin? And I said to her, I said to, I said to her, and my answer to that question is always the same. I start the same. I said, well, who is the final authority on what's right and wrong in your life? Is it, is it God? Is it the word of God? Is it the tooth fairy? Is it unicorns? Is it, is it so society? I said, who do you believe gets to decide what's right and wrong? 
And if she says unicorns, then I'll say, well, then ask the unicorns if homosexuality is a sin. Because again, we can't, we can't argue morality from two completely different perspectives with somebody, and we're wasting our, tr- our time, and it's a loaded question. I would have much rather Lauren Dangle just ask the interviewer, do you believe that God's word is the final authority on what's right and wrong, and what's sin and what's not sin? And if the interviewer said, no, I don't believe the word of God is the final authority on what's sin and what's not sin, then she would say, as Jesus is going to tell these Pharisees in this chapter, well, then neither will I answer you. But if they say, yes, I believe God's word is the final authority on what's right and wrong, then she could have said, then, then you already have your answer. Read Romans chapter 1 and you tell me whether it's sin or not. I don't even have to answer. Go read Romans 1 and, and, and you answer that question for yourself. And the answer is yes. Romans chapter 1 says it's a sin. And it's, it's not any different sin than if a, a straight guy is cheating on his wife. And yet we put different labels on it. Sex outside of marriage is sex outside of marriage, and sin is sin. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, it says in Leviticus, and, it's, and Jesus said that, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And, 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 and again, I, I, you know, does that offend people? Yeah, it does, especially in the society we live in. And I'm sorry, but Jesus was offensive at times, not needlessly offensive. And I don't ever want to be needlessly offensive. I don't want to offend you just because I can. My, 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 Jesus, didn't, Jesus told me and you in the word of God, that the most important thing in your life is to love God and love other people. But, but some people, unfortunately, take that, oh, um, uh, Jesus said that love is more important, so we shouldn't say anything that's controversial. We shouldn't say anything that's, you know. But no, he said, speak the truth in love. And, and we have to speak the truth in love. Unfortunately, you know, there's people that call themselves Christians that stand on street corners with signs that say God hates fags. Now, I promise you, Jesus wouldn't act that way. I promise you, that's not the heart of Jesus. And he's offended just as much as anybody else is about that sign. And that's wrong, and that's not the heart of God. And none of us need to be out there with bullhorns yelling at people when they're going down the street, they're going to hell. Whether it's true or not. Because Jesus said, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. And again, but, you know, again, encouraging people. You know, and just in those loaded questions. And again, I don't care... You know, it, it's typical of Oprah Winfrey. If you've ever seen Oprah Winfrey, she does, she does some interviews. She's had some big-name um, Christian pastors on her show and um, with some very successful ministries. And guess which question they come to every time she gets a Christian leader on her show? Every time. She, actually, Oprah likes two questions, the homosexuality question, and then Oprah's other big thing is she likes to ask them, is Jesus the only way to heaven? Because she doesn't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. She believes all roads in roads lead to heaven, and Jesus is just one of them. And so she asked them that. And if you answer correctly to either one of those questions, and, you know, you're blackballed, you probably wouldn't get on her show in the first place if you believe either one of those things. She's kind of, but she's had a couple. So, um, so again, in those areas of morality, and I just want to kind of wrap that up again. If you face that as a Christian, lo- love definitely is first. We want to love people. You know, I want to love all people. And I don't know how to communicate that, you know, because unfortunately, um, you know, sometimes when, when we believe what the Word of God says and we take it at face value, uh, other people assume, not to our bad, but to their bad, that then we are hateful or we're not, we're, we're, we're less inclusive or something. That's not, the, that's not the case at all. Again, you know, you look at Lydia's dad and, you know, and, and, and the, the fruit of somebody's life. And what's the real fruit? That they love people and they serve people. They don't hate anybody. And they welcome everybody and everybody's welcome and we have ministry for folks in all kinds of sins, including that one, and all kinds of sins to love and try to help people that want to get help and want to walk with Jesus. 
And so, again, if someone asks you that question, just find out what, what, what they believe is the final authority on right and wrong. And if it's apples and oranges, then you don't even need to go there with them. You know, let them decide for themselves. You don't need to answer that question. Are you compromising by not answering a question? Absolutely not. You're just, you're just not, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, do not cast your pearls before swines. So if you're, if you're giving that answer to somebody who's just looking to hang you with it, and you don't give it to them, and you don't tell them that, you're, you're, you're not compromising. You're just simply not casting your, your pearls before swines, because they just want to argue. They don't want to grow. If, you, if someone genuinely wants to know the que- answer to that question, you know, I believe too, and I've, I've said this too, I believe that for those when they get trapped in that question, unfortunately, where, where Lauren Daigle found herself trapped by this, this question that was evil and intended just to get her in trouble, um, that, that she, you know, you just say, hey, we're not going to answer or have that discussion unless we read Romans chapter 1 on air. Tell the interviewer, you, if, if you want to read Romans chapter 1 on the air, you just open it up, you know, on the TV or the radio or wherever the fa- platform is, and you, you read Romans chapter 1, then, then let your audience decide. Then have a call-in session after that. Let the audience decide what they believe Romans chapter 1 means. Amen? So Jesus said, um, basically, he, he uses a lot of wisdom, the kind of same wisdom I hope we just gleaned a little bit from. He said, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. But if you don't answer me, basically, I'm not going to answer you. He said, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And it says, they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So no doubt the Sadducees, Pharisees, these guys were sharp too. They had lawyers, they knew the word of God, they were politicians, they were religious folks. And so no doubt when Jesus asked this question, they're like, okay, huddle, 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 up. You know, and they get around, they probably walk away from where Jesus is, and they, they start going back and forth. And, and, and they realize that if they say the baptism of John was from God, Jesus will say, well, why then did you not go get baptized by John? And if they say the baptism of John was from men then the, the people believed John was a, was a prophet and they would have politically and spiritually been hanging themselves by saying that it wasn't from God and they, they didn't have any way to answer. But again, Jesus was giving them the same kind of litmus test. Unless we're talking apples to apples, then I won't answer you. Had they said, yes, we, we believe that it was the baptism of John was from God, then Jesus would have went on and explained to them by what authority he cleansed the temple. But when they said... In verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. In other words, we plead the fifth. We're not going to answer your question because it's a trap. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Did Jesus compromise in verse 27? And, I, and I, that question is asked so that if somebody asks you the, the, the loaded homosexual question, and you don't give them a straight answer. You, you try to find a, a level playing field of morality. Are you compromising by not answering the question? No, Jesus didn't answer the question. Jesus said, are we, are we on the same playing field? No, we're not. Then what are we talking about? We don't need to have this conversation anymore. And then in verse 28, he says, but what do you think? So now Jesus is going to get him. He's going to set him up now. A man had, he's having fun now. A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. And his son said, I will not. And then the father smacked him all about his head, face and mouth. Because <laughs> that's what I would do. And my son to look at me in the face and said, no, (laughs) I ain't going to work. But afterward, the son regretted it and he went. And then he came to the second son and he said, likewise. And the the son answered him, said, oh, yes, sir, right away, sir. Dad, I'll go right now. And he never went. Which of the two did the will of his father? 
And they said to him, well, the first, of course. And Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Bada bing, bada boom. That's like drum roll, ding, gong show. Um, So let's unpack the first part. The first son said, no, I'm not going. I'm busy. I'm playing Xbox, talking to my friends. I'm on Fortnite. Can I finish? You know? And then, and then later was like, oh, you know, that, that wasn't right. I, I, I should have I went and done what dad asked me to do. And then, and then put it down, and he went and did what he was asked to do. And the second guy gave lip service and said, yeah, 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 no worries. I'll get there, and never went. And then Jesus said, which one of them did the will of the Father? And they said, well, obviously the, the first one who actually went and did the work, not, the, not one who just said they were going to do it and then actually did nothing. At the end of this chapter, one of these Sadducees and Pharisees and this group of smart guys that Jesus is talking to, the Bible says, Listen, the Bible says he perceived Jesus was talking about them. <laughs> it's like one guy finally like, oh, he's talking about us. You know, like, and the whole time Jesus is talking about them and using all these examples to show them why their, their religiosity and their religion is wrong. Why, why this outward form of religion without the power of God, this Phariseeism that they ascribe to, that on the outside they, they were, you know, Jesus is going to really light them up in a couple chapters and he's going to call them a brood of vipers and you whitewashed tombs. On the outside you're white and clean and look all sparkly and on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. And Jesus is going to light them up in a couple chapters and not pull any punches. But here he's kind of just messing with them. And finally, one of them at the very end of this chapter is like, oh, he's talking about us. So, and then Jesus said, listen, I say to you that tax collectors and hookers enter the kingdom of God before you. How is that? These, these are the most righteous, holy, religious, priests, pious in their pope robes and their collars and their holy water and their incense burners and their phylacteries sticking on their forehead and their you know and jesus says he looks at these guys and he says hookers and sinners go to heaven before you do that would have been mic drop and 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 what is he saying what is he saying about you and i what is he saying about us is that what what why why would a tax collector and a harlot Go to heaven before these guys. Well, because the tax collector and the harlot realized they were sinners. They realized that they were unworthy and needed a savior. And they repented like the first son who said no originally and was bad originally and said, no, dad, I'm not going. And then had a change of heart and went and did the work. Well, the sinners, the tax collectors and the harlots and the gluttons and the people that the Pharisees often accused Jesus of being too friendly with. You and I, we realize that we need a savior. And we don't stand behind the idea or the fact that we're good or we're good enough or we're worthy. We realize we're not worthy. We're unworthy. Only Jesus is worthy. And there's nothing I can do to earn the the salvation of God. I can only receive the free gift that Jesus offered upon the cross. And that I can't do, 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 do anything because Jesus already done, 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 done it. And it's done. And Jesus said, the reason why this group of people are going to go to heaven before you, and this stuff was meant to be a shocker, was because everyday people like you and I who lead lead normal broken lives, 
we, we realize we need a Savior and we repent and, 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 and the harlots. And then you know what exactly happened in Jesus' day? The bad folks, the, the rotten people, the sinners were coming to Jesus in droves. And all the religious folks of Jesus' day, they weren't coming at all. They didn't need Jesus and they had it all figured out. And they were, they were, they were prideful and arrogant. And, and, um, and so these people kept coming. And in verse 32, Jesus said, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believe him. And when you saw it, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and somebody believe him. What did Jesus say the criteria for getting saved was here in this verse? To believe, to believe, to believe. And that's what the harlots and the tax collectors, they came to John. And when they heard the preaching of repentance, they repented and their hearts were broken and they believed. And, and the work of salvation was in believing, not in doing. Believing, believing, believing. Twice in verse 32, Jesus said it was about believe. And so believe, relent, repent, and believe in him. And in verse 33, it says, hear another parable. There was, he's still talking about them. The guy hasn't figured it out yet, but he's still going to go on to give another example about them, the religious folks who missed it. Hear, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge in it. Hedge, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to a vine dresser and went to a far country. Now, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dresser that they might receive its fruit and the rent, the wages. And the vine dressers took his servant, beat one. He sent another one. He killed one. And they sent another one, and they stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, and more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And then the landowner at last sent his own son to them saying, they will respect my son. So the landowner thinks, well, then I'll send my son. They've they've rejected all the others that I've sent. But at least if I send my very son, they'll honor him and respect him. Can anybody else see where Jesus is going with this? Who, Who did he send before he sent his son? All the prophets starting with Abraham, starting with Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and on and on and on and on and all the prophets of the Old Testament. You know what they did to Isaiah? They cut him in half, starting in his groin through the top of his head. They sawed him in half. They killed him. They murdered him. They murdered many of the prophets over the years. Who murdered him? Bad people? No. You know who murdered all the prophets over the years in the history of Israel? The religious people. The Sadducees and the Pharisee types and the, the right, more holier than now and the religious folks. They murdered him and finally he sent his son Jesus thinking they'll respect him. What did they do to Jesus? They murdered him. And so Jesus is saying, and they said they will respect him in verse 38. But when the vine dresser saw the son, they said among themselves, this is his heir. Come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? What's God going to do to these folks? What's God going to do to you folks? In verse 41, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to another vine dresser who will render him the fruits of the season. And Jesus said to them, have you not read in the scriptures? Verse 42. Now, little rabbit trail. Hey, hold your finger there. And if you look for Matthew 21, 16. In my Bible, it's back one page. It might all be on the same page for you. Matthew 21, 16. Same chapter. We read it last week. And he said to him, do you hear what, those, what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, 
Have you never read? Okay, now turn back. Verse 42, Jesus talking to another group, same guys, kind of another group of them. Have you never read in scriptures? Oftentimes, Jesus is just bringing them and us and you and I back to the word of God. Now, one of the things that I've been preaching a lot lately, I'm encouraging you guys, and hopefully not scaring you with it, but it is the truth. God expects you to know the Bible. Jesus expects you to know the word of God. And and with these religious folks, there was no grace. It was in the word of God. God had already spoken to them. When Jesus says, have you not read, he means it in the way that what was written in there was the voice and the absolute will of God. And they should have known and taken it as the voice and the will of God. And so oftentimes Jesus is saying, have you not read? And he's expecting and requiring you and I and these folks to have known what the will of God was based on the word of God. And so that's why I constantly, constantly can't encourage us enough as a family of believers, as a church, to be a people of the word of God. In the book of Revelation, seven churches, and Jesus said he's going to bless the church that kept his word. I want to be that church. I want to be that people. I want to be the people that out of all seven churches, the one that got blessed the most, the best, but nothing bad to say about him, was the end time church that kept the word of God. And so we got to keep the word of God. We got to be in the word of God. We got to be a people of the word. We got to study the word. We got to read the word. We got to know the word. And so it says, um, then Jesus quotes uh, a verse. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So the stone which the rejectors, which the builders rejected is repeated several times as a theme in the Bible. Jesus is the stone which the rejectors built, uh, uh, which the build, the rejectors builded? No, that the builders rejected. And basically the story is that when they were building the, the temple of Solomon, now even today in the Western Wall and in places in the old city that was there originally with the, with the temple that Solomon built, they, they didn't use brick and mortar. And on the site of the temple, they didn't want the sound of hammer nor chisel or saw or any, any noise banging going on where the temple was being constructed. So a ways off, they would, they would hewn all of the stones and all of the work that went into Solomon's temple. And then they would bring the stones to where the builders were and the builders would place them one on top of another with no mortar and they would fit so perfectly that you couldn't fit a credit card in between them. They were so perfectly hewn and designed. And one of the stones was sent up and the chief builder didn't know where it went. And he said, this one doesn't fit. And he threw it off to the side and continued to work. And in the months and years that followed, the grass grew up and they forgot about it. And the chief cornerstone. Now, because everything was done without brick and mortar, when you get to the very top, this last stone that the whole building hinges on has to be exactly perfect and it was called the chief cornerstone and he said to the to the quarry he sent word to the quarry and he said i need the chief cornerstone and they said we already sent it and then they went and found the grass grown over the stone which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone and that's a picture of jesus that the chief cornerstone was rejected by israel and her people and jesus quotes that verse to him saying that the the son And Jesus said in verse 43, and we're almost done, you guys. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. 
And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So the the gospel is just that truth. Whoever, um, 44, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on him who it falls will grind into powder. The, the, um, Paul tells us in the in Philippians, Therefore God has also highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and, and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That means that the worst egregious sinners in all of human history, Hitler and the likes, one day when they breathe their last and they see God, they're going to fall to their knees and they're going to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord because the reality of of truth is going to hit them. But they're not going to do it unto repentance. At that point, it's too late and they're going to hell and, and they've confessed that unto their own damnation. So, so when the stone falls on you, it crushes you into fine powder. But when you fall upon the stone, for those of us who gladly and willingly bend the knee now, today, and say Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, and we bend the knee and confess with the tongue, we've fallen upon the stone, and, and to us will be, will be broken. And so that's every one of us will confess, will bow the knee and confess, and to some under their own eternal damnation, and some unto eternal reward in heaven with God forever, the same confession. So this stone, Jesus says here, works both ways. If it falls on you, it crushes you. If you fall on it, it'll bless you. And in verse 45, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, here's that guy, they perceived that they were speaking of them. So finally, these knuckleheads are starting to get it. They're like, oh, he's talking about us. We're the dummies. And it says in verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him out for a prophet. Let's stand. Let's have the worship team come up and close the song. So worship team's coming up. We want to uh, just give everybody an invitation to uh, come up for prayer. Lydia and I will be up front to pray for you. Jay and Allie will be up front to pray for you. If anybody needs individual prayer, we encourage you. Just come up as we sing this last song, and uh, we, we'd love to pray for you. If you want to um, make sure, you want to get your life right with the Lord this morning, if God spoke to you and you're just really not sure if, if you're going to heaven, if you're not sure you're a Christian and you want to make your life right, come and we'll pray and we'll lead you in a prayer to receive the Lord in your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. If you, um, maybe you're a Christian, you've been walking with the Lord a long time and everything's good in your life and you just want to come up and ask, ask for God to, to even make things better, then we'd love to pray with you for that. So we encourage you, if anybody would like individual prayer, it's just one last song, we encourage you to come up for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.